always leave them wanting more. We're back. Tokyo is here. We're still sponsored by Dragon Hockey, who continue to grow. They've got a new logo and an amazing new range of sticks, clothing, and accessories, which are out soon. So keep an eye out for that on all their social media. We've been away for five months, and we're starting off with an amazing guest who I interviewed at the end of January. Obviously, a lot has happened in that time, and a few weeks after I spoke to her, she was appointed as the head coach of the Hockey Roos to take the squad to the Tokyo Olympics. It's my pleasure to kick off season four of the Left Field Thinking podcast with our interview with double Olympic gold medal winner, Katrina Powell. So, hello, Trini. It's great to have you on. Uh, a legend of the game, just to make you feel old. Uh, <laughs> Very old. Um, would you like to give us an introduction as to who you are and and what you've done and what you're currently doing now? Alrighty. Yeah, my name is, well, Katrina, Trini Powell. Um, I played with the Hockey Roos, the Australian women's hockey team, ooh, uh, from 1994 through to 2004. I did pretty much 11 seasons. Went to three Olympics. Once I retired, I started coaching and now I work at the New South Wales Institute of Sport, which is a, a pathway program for aspiring hockey roos. So I'm based in um, Sydney and work out of Sydney Olympic Park, actually. So it's very nice to go to work every day at a venue where you won Olympic gold medal. It keeps it very fresh. Do you get a, do you get a guard of honour every day when you walk? <laughs> yeah, I wish. Um, yeah, oh, drink a cold water would be something. Uh, no, and it's obviously quite quite different. It's changed all the, you know, the uh, temporary stands and all, uh, obviously, uh, quite different. But, um, yeah, it's pretty ironic. What does your current role entail? And you say you're working with potential hockey roos. What sort of age group would they be identified at? And what does the contact time look like when do you get to see them? Yeah, so the age group is really varied and, and can change quite um, quickly. Mostly um, identifying athletes from, you know, 15, 16, 17, probably not brought into the program until 17 kind of thing. Um, so that's the youngest um, but of course uh, all of our national players uh, reside in Perth so anytime that they're not there then they're um, if, if they're decentralizing they're back in in my program and uh, with COVID I've had a couple of them back for quite a period of time so I've had you know uh, someone like Kate Jenner back and I think ooh, she's maybe getting kind of 28 so there can be quite uh, quite a difference I'd, I'd say the average age is around 23 that kind of thing got a group of 16 athletes for 2021 um and the program it's definitely developmental and individual we don't play together as a team um it is about preparing them for the hockey roos and for international competition or to I suppose make that jump uh, into a high performance training program as, as that gap as small as possible we train uh, well, they're doing something six days a week like like many hockey players are. That includes uh, strength programs, group training sessions, individual technical focus programs. And they also then play for a club team um, that 
yeah, is essentially part of the program. Um, they obviously go and play for their clubs and under the full control of the clubs and the coaches. Uh, but I go watch those games and provide feedback for them so that they're implementing those things that they are practicing and learning during the week and making sure that they're showing up on the weekends. So that interaction with you and the club, is that exclusively via the player or do you work with the coaches and and how does the club interact with the programme that you're putting together? Yeah, it's mostly through the players because I want them to have that experience that uh, they have access to different coaching and, and uh, yeah, being taught and coached uh, by different people. I don't have all of the answers. I certainly have an idea of what's required from the Hockey Roos, what they're looking for. So there's a... Um, I suppose, an authority there. Our club system isn't, you know, what you guys would be thinking is your club system because above club we have our state system and then hockey roos. So um, I do interact with those coaches and they're, they're open to that interaction. And the key training sessions that the athletes do are with me at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. They are higher um, than their, their club. Uh, trainings for example so I think there's good interaction Um, the players in Sydney when they're playing club they're not getting paid money or anything like that so apart from committing to a team they don't have any uh, responsibilities over and above just being a good team member Uh, so I, I think it works well and to the benefit of the athlete that they get to be part of a team they get to be a leader in their team a good player in their team and be coached by various um, people uh, and then they get the personal coaching that I then provide them that guides them towards the representing their country hopefully. So you say you know you're IDing people to be hockey roos at that youngest age what are you looking for as as an indicator that this person has the potential? Yeah I'm I'm mostly looking for that raw hockey talent and that ability that uh, to read the game, to play the game, coordination, smooth skills. It is, for me, I find, yeah, my identification is really hockey-based, that the other things can be improved. Um, You know, if that person has good speed, if that person has good athleticism, bonus. Um, But at that point, yeah, being able to play hockey or show some potential to be a good athlete, a good player, at that point that's enough to pick them up and and try and work something uh, within that framework. The AIS is quite famous globally for shifting athletes to different sports where they think they might have medal potential. How much does that happen in hockey? And, you know, do you get someone who's completely raw coming across because they're incredibly agile, have got a great change of pace and direction? Yeah, not usually. I'm not sure what uh, your other listeners find, but mostly we have athletes stolen from hockey rather than join later. Um, I'm sure we've all seen um, people that have taken up the sport 
late and I think it's really difficult to take up the sport late and I think you can tell those players that didn't start when they were really um, young. It's not to say that it can't be done but I think it happens more the other way. Certainly in Australia we've seen an explosion of um, women's uh, sports, uh, professional sports, um, adding uh, a women's competition on. So at the moment we are looking at athletes leaving the sport, not coming late to hockey. So um, we haven't lost too many. It's probably a bit more of a problem down in Victoria where AFL has really taken off for the for the women, um, but it, it has happened uh, in Sydney as well and maybe in Brisbane, but um, oh, Adelaide um, as well, where um, AFL is in the bigger, in those states, is bigger in, in those states players have left and they can um, actually make money um, from, from the sport and only have months of commitment rather than, you know, probably the 10 months that we're asking um, hockey players to have. Um, and and they're players that might be, you know, in early national identification, certainly not um, national identification or have gone through the process of um, not making the hockey ruse and come out the other side. So mostly I'm only looking at um, hockey players, not really outside because that technical ability, I, I think it's hard if you haven't started young. Where does early specialisation fit with you then I mean a lot a lot of people would say yes because it's really fine motor skill that we're talking about you need to sample um at, at what age do you think players should be hockey 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 yeah I I think it depends on the on the athlete I, the a couple of new athletes that I've got starting this year are 17 turning 18 that have been involved in other sports um I've definitely had state reps uh with uh, touch footy in particular um, and a couple of other, you know, softball. Uh, there have been other sports that are um, sometimes in the opposite season here in Australia and so they've been able to play both for quite a period of time. I myself, I played um, representative softball, uh, must have been until I was 19 or 20, and so I am all for the management of, of two sports. We've got a, um, a young player also in New South Wales who's been identified for cricket. Um, as well so the working with them at that age you know 17 through to 20 how do they work in what's their preference how do the sports support each other and mostly they they do that's a you know a talented athlete then that's doing maybe well in a couple of sports so I'm not one for pushing dropping other sports too early I'm definitely for picking up hockey nice and early but along with other sports because there's a lot to be gained from other other sports I believe and not specializing too early it, there does come a point where um, it's it gets too much and and you do have to make a decision eventually and you look at you playing softball how do you think that influenced um, your interaction with with hockey on the pitch yeah, I um, and again, it's probably in easier times. You know, the hockey season was shorter, and so you could play one sport. Well, we're talking about hockey being a winter sport in Australia, softball a summer sport in Australia, and you could actually um, do that. Uh, it's tougher. The, all sports are longer um, now, uh, and so there there is that um, clash. I felt for me that softball really uh, generally helped my coordination. Um, 
some of it's a bit awkward because I uh, I am actually left-handed, so I think that's good for hockey. But it meant for softball I was a bit of a switch hitter. So in terms of being able to hit on the four stick and the reverse stick, then I didn't have any problems with that. Um, I also have an older sister, Lisa, uh, who also played for Australia uh, in hockey, and um, I got her hand-me-down softball glove. So instead of my parents getting the glove that should go in this hand so you can throw, you know, with your good hand. No, I had to have the hand-me-down on my throwing, uh, the hand-me-down glove on my throwing arm. So now I can actually throw with both arms uh, as well. So I don't want to be, you know, bagging on my parents. They were obviously very supportive of me and my sisters for a long time in in hockey. They're obviously still supporters. But, um, yeah, that hand-me-down glove, geez. But, yeah, I I think softball uh, really helped me. I think uh, it also, same as any team sport, teaches you how to be in a team, uh, how to operate with others, how to um, rely on others. Certainly in the hockey field, you're at least all on the field at the one time. Uh, you're all responsible at the same time for attack, for defence. In softball, it's a little, it's a little different. You know, you're up there on your own. If you are batting and something needs to happen, well, you're the one that needs to make something happen. I think I always liked being that one. Um, as a striker, I liked being the one to score. Um, so even within a team, I still wanted to make sure that I contributed. I wouldn't just allow the team to win, allow the team to do well and claim that really as my own success if I hadn't contributed. So, yes, I I appreciated that uh, in softball and and also as being a striker in hockey, I think. There's quite a lot there that I want to talk about. I I played quite a bit of cricket growing up. One of the biggest things I regret is never um, trying to throw my left hand because I could throw really well with my right hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a massive limiting factor. And actually, that's I, I worked in the school for about six years, and one of the things I was doing all all the way through the youngest age groups was like, yeah, okay, you're right-handed, don't care. We're now throwing with our left hand, and we're throwing with our right yeah. hand. I think it's well, so important. The beauties of hockey, you know. Now we're so both-sided. Um, I think that I mean, obviously, hockey is a very skillful sport, but we always are looking at ways to make it more skillful. Um, to add excitement to our game. You know, I've listened to, uh, you know, AFL commentary that is, oh, you know, he's got a wheel around here to get on his left foot because that's his dominant foot. I'm like, you're a paid professional footballer. Like, why can't you kick off your other foot just as well as you can, you know, your your favoured foot? Uh, Sometimes that makes me realise or remember how uh, skillful hockey is as a game to to play and and it's not an easy sport to pick up yeah and i think that sort of that bilateral is getting more and more important actually within well, yeah. hockey so the double question at the end of your program what do you want to have developed in these female athletes to allow them to play with the hockey ruse what are those key skills and then secondly what do you think the the key skills of the future are going to be if the game, you know, game's becoming more bilateral. What do you think it's going to look like? Yeah, good questions. Uh, certainly for me in the in the pathway in the area that I'm working in, then working on those fundamentals, the core skills are obviously really important. I'm a big believer in 10,000 hours of practice that it, it it does take a long time to master things, and if you don't have focused practice on them, 
well, you're wasting some of those hours then. It will just add on to the end. You will still have 10,000 hours ahead of you. But if you don't practice those skills under pressure and put them into context and do them at the right time, there's no point, you know, being able to play both sides of your body if you're just going to tomber all the time when you could have just simply passed off your four stick. And that's the quickest and most efficient way to get the ball somewhere. Um, so being able to do all of those skills under pressure, at pace, at the right time, that's what I think we're aiming for, which is which is why core skills practice and match practice um, and role responsibility within a team, they're all really big learning pieces for athletes coming through. I, th I think the way that the game is progressing, that the ball uh, coming off the deck more and more is probably the way that it's, it's going to continue to go as well. The way the rules uh, change and evolve are about making things more exciting I, I know for sure they're concerned about danger and that that will be kept in check, I've got no doubt. But the ability for more and exciting creative ways of playing our game will continue to evolve. I think we have that over football, over soccer, you know, that, that we have evolved as a sport and we continue to look at new and exciting ways to do things. Um, so I think the ball coming off the deck is the next uh, logical piece that uh, more and more kids will practice their, their skills, uh, as we've seen this year in a year of COVID in terms of all the videos that the kids are making and the skills that they're developing, that's what I've seen happen. You know, when um, we brought in that you could raise your stick above your head to, to trap an overhead, that's because kids were already doing it in their games because they see it now if, if not on TV, then live streaming matches that they've already seen all of that stuff. They know how to drag flick when they're really young because they've seen it on video. They don't have to wait for a coach to specifically set them down and go, here, learn this skill. They're already well aware of them before they get into those serious environments. So uh, I think it's, it's quite exciting to see where um, hockey will go because we are interested always in evolving our game and trying new and different things. Um, the concern is just around safety and to make sure that our sport remains um, safe. But, yeah, the ability to play the ball off the deck um, I, I think is, um, yeah, one way to keep the, keep the sport moving, keep it exciting. So interesting in terms of new skills emerging in, in, in that answer. I take you back to Atlanta and the gold medal match and the goal you scored, I think, around 63 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Uh, a weird goal uh, and probably influenced by the fact you're a lefty. Yes. So an upright reverse chip. I suppose we're we're talking days before Tomahawks. Yeah. Um, what in that moment made you interact with the game in that way? Had you developed that skill, or did you just wing it and try it in that moment? And and if you had developed it, how how did it develop? How did it emerge as something to try? Because it was a really unique way to to interact with the moment of the game. Yeah, um, and 
playing on my backhand, even though the backhand was um, illegal, the inside edge of the stick was illegal in those times. I used to play off the toe of the stick quite a bit as a way to play on that side of your um, body. I, I remember getting in trouble numerous times from Rick Charlesworth about uh, getting off that that side. You know what's the what's the point? So. I definitely practice it. It was definitely part of my game. It felt natural to me to play on that side as well as the four stick because I'm left-handed, I think. Um, but in that moment, that's where the space was. You know, so I'd already got, you know, past one defender and then the next defender pushes me back towards the left. Then there is the own, there is only the left side of your body to play from because if I keep it on my right, then that's where the defender is. I think it makes it a really difficult shot. The Koreans in the final, they had a brilliant goalkeeper in the net. She was very well regarded, but something different, something really quick um, off the deck like that, a reverse stick chip is, is not something that she would have then practised against, you know. So having that come at you, no matter how good you are, if you've never seen it before, it's a, it's a surprise. So I definitely had um, practice using that side of my body but I also was not much of a thinker as a striker that um, what I did in the circle especially by um, you know late in my career was really reactionary to what was going on the idea that well, I, I'm trying to score a goal. I really want to score a goal. I want my name up there. I know I can do this. I know I can manipulate defenders. I know have, I have different shot types available to me. So given the scenario of where I am in the circle, do I have possession of the ball or is it coming with me? Um, are there How many defenders? Where are they? And what would the goalkeeper be likely doing now? You know, likely rushing out because there aren't any defenders or stuck on one side of the goal because the balls come from that side of the field. So all of that stuff happening in your brain at one time can only come through lots of experiences. Definitely there's there's technical practice around the shot types, um, but knowing what's happening around you at any one time, you can't possibly practice all of those scenarios. So you have to actually be able to read what's going on and then be really determined to score. I know the ball has to go there. What's and how is the best way to get that done right now is going to give me the, the most likely outcome, that, that lack of thinking. Yeah, and so how would you develop that with athletes in your current coaching? How is that sort of mindset translated to what you do with the players? Yeah, well, I think it's putting yourself in scenarios regularly, like I'm talking about when I was finishing my career. So it's years of wanting to score goals and reviewing when I didn't and why I didn't. So reflecting back on missed opportunities, being really annoyed with myself with missed opportunities because it wasn't about, oh, well, I want to score uh, a goal today. Uh, it was, well, I'm going out there to score. And if I score, then I want to score another one. So if I didn't or I messed it up, if there was only one or two opportunities in the match and I messed it up, I was not happy at all and I would consider myself to have not played well. So reviewing those situations, thinking about them uh, in order to do them better next time. Yeah, I suppose that, that doing it better next time is a is a key bit because that mindset of 
beating yourself up for not taking an opportunity can be quite destructive for a player psychologically. So how do you find that balance if you've got a player in that situation who's, you know, a goal scorer is desperate to do it all the time, but yeah. actually it's just not happening. How, how would you support them in that? moment well I, I would say keep doing it keep being there you know if you are there and if you are determined to score it it will happen it will happen um I also uh, talk to strikers about how good it is to be an attacker um that when you step on the field it is at the start of the game zero zero so there can only be goals scored no one is going to take a goal off you and often for strikers if you've tried really hard you've dived and you've been really determined to score and it doesn't come off people will still clap you yes if you are a defender and you make a mistake not so much so you've got this I always felt as a as an attacker as a striker I had a real freedom to go to go get a goal to um play with that liberty that um just license that's what it is a license to go and try and score and it's up to the opposition team to try and stop you it's not up to you to try and stop yourself which is uh, where you're going with the the uncertainty of it all I'm quite a positive um, person so I would always be just about the next game yes learning but oh I want to play tomorrow now especially if we didn't win a game like right I want to play tomorrow I want to you know I suppose tape over that game uh, with the next game to make sure that it's it's a good one. I think you've got to be careful about that if you're trying to learn and develop that you have to take out of matches. Whether you win or lose, what you can to make you a better player. I mean, in the end, that's for me as a player, that is now the thing that I'm most proud of is that I know I got to be the best player that I could be and, and that's what I'm trying to get out of my athletes it doesn't matter if you end up playing for the hockey ruse or not if you've become the best player that you can be that's that's what you're going to hang your hat on that's what you can be happy with at the end of the day you touched earlier on playing with your sister so I sent a message to a group of coaches earlier and said oh, I'm interviewing uh, Katrina Powell later what what would you ask her and one of one of the guys Ben Edwards there you go there's a shout out Ben said what was the impact of playing with your sister at international level do you think it was a positive or do you think it limited you or what what's the balance of that good question I I think it was a good thing um in the end and pretty soon after we were very competitive growing up so we actually helped each other to get there you know backyard games of hockey were pretty scary things uh, in my place three girls in my family so there weren't even any boys to make it rougher it was already scary enough we didn't wear shoes uh we just would use you know old school cricket balls old yucky six stitch kind of thing um dad would paint them for us and we would just smash each other um in the in the backyard and when we played in the backyard because Lisa's my older sister I'm in the middle and we have a younger sister um and it would be Lisa and I versus my younger sister she was the best defender um out of all of us the best tackler um and she would often beat the two of us is just ironic that Lisa and I ended up playing for Australia and um, she she didn't. Um, but it's it's that kind of 
rivalry that um, started us. I used to annoy her a lot because when she started playing in underage groups uh, for uh, our state, Australian Capital Territory and the ACT where we grew up, uh, I would play above my age group and we would play together all the time and I would be this annoying little sister that just followed her everywhere. Um, and I loved it. I, I wanted to play in higher age groups. I wanted to play in better teams because better teams would feed me the ball. Um, you know, I didn't have to go get it myself when I was playing in my own um, age group. Uh, so Lisa and I played together for a long time. And after that initial, you know, young teenage annoyance that she had with her little sister following her around, uh, then we combined really well. She would play in the midfield, I'd play as a striker. Eventually she shifted um, in the Australian team to playing a halfback. But, uh, yeah, we, we combined really well. She, she could um, find me. I like to think I was a good leader. She would say she was a good passer. Um, but we had a, a good, good combination um, happening. And, yeah, Australian history in the in the hockey rules is full of sisters um, playing in the team. It's not uh, uncommon at all, and um, I generally uh, think that it's been been of benefit to have have that happen. You know, having a family member right there is um, usually pretty helpful. And by the time you've played all of that time with your teammates, the ups and the downs, everyone feels like family in the end, anyway. That couldn't have started as a more Australian stereotypical story. Three girls playing barefoot in the garden, the cricket ball, being rough. That's just, I was like, oh, here we go. It's like an episode of Neighbours. The, the hockey ruse at that time, you know, under Rick was just a winning machine. How did you win after winning? There's a really famous incident that Danny Kerry goes in after the Rio Gold, the day after Rio Gold with the GB girls and puts up a PowerPoint that says winning after winning and you're just like, give them a break. But how did you deal with winning after winning? How, what were you able to do with that? And then as that momentum grows, pressure and expectation of winning would grow as well. And, and how as a group of athletes did you deal with that? And how did the coaches support you with that if they did? Yeah, we were very much, not uh, after Olympic wins, but certainly after any other tournament or any after, after any other match, it was generally, okay, this is what we did well, this is what we need to do better. You learn and you focus on the, on the next match. I, I do regret that we didn't um, celebrate as much as we should have in anything other than Olympic finals. Olympic finals, World Cup finals, the only real times that we celebrated because apart from that you're on to the next thing um so that that was our um yeah the way we operated as well which is a bit of a shame but uh it meant you're always driven for the next thing as well i certainly was driven after atlanta because atlanta was my first major tournament i had to yeah work really hard broke into the team and i found the olympics to be absolutely amazing and I wanted to do it all again then like you I know the majority of the group they'd been training for four years you know to to get back what they'd lost um in Barcelona and to um yeah to atone for that um and I'd come in within the last year 
hell-bent on going to the Olympics, loving the Olympics, getting to score in an Olympic final, winning an Olympic medal, to just going, oh, I want to do this all again. And knowing that Sydney was on the agenda next, I could have gone and trained the next day. I really could have. Um, I went and uh, I made sure I was on the next um, trip that was a development kind of uh, trip at the end of the year. I made sure I was still on that. I did not want to lose my place at all. Um, absolutely loved it. Um, obviously, Sydney then is the four-year um, cycle and they're working really hard to get um, that. And, yeah, it was after that that Rick walked away then and he'd finished coaching us at that point. So it was all a really big celebration of a, a, an era coming to an end, not just an Olympic campaign. Uh, it, was, it was bigger than that and it was a, a celebration for all of the athletes that had been involved. So obviously being in, in Sydney, uh, there's a lot of the squad members that were there to help us to celebrate, many more family and friends to celebrate. So the difference between Atlanta and then Sydney was just, yeah, complete contrasts of, right, next thing, what's happening after Atlanta, I want to move on and do the next thing and get it going. And Sydney was a real time to stop, take a pause and actually then and only then really appreciate uh, what I was a part of, which was just something really special that also happened in a time when we had a home Olympics. I mean, that's just, I, um, I for a long time called it lucky. You know, I said, oh, we were lucky. We had good players around. We had good coaches, our support staff depth in the squad, oh, and it was just in lucky we had a home Olympics. Well, the only thing that was lucky maybe was, um, it, you know, Sydney hosting the Olympics. Nothing else was lucky. I know there's probably a lot of um, Sydney Olympic organisers out there going, that wasn't luck, we worked really hard to get that. But uh, on the hockey side of things, we worked hard. We really did. We pushed each other. Yeah, I was the fittest I've ever been. I was um, I was probably playing the best that I've um, ever played and you can't have that be just one person. That's a whole team of, of good players. A lot of people, a lot invested in us and we all worked really hard to achieve that and it, it was not luck. So after Sydney, what then was the difference? Obviously Rick left. Why was that momentum not able to continue? Yeah, I think for me the culture then changed so that, um, you know, being really tough on each other, we had a really hard culture. It, it was, you know, work hard, become the best you can be or you're out and someone would replace you and someone next to you would tell you that you weren't working hard enough and so you'd pick your socks up and go again. Um, I think that the change was then not as, uh, we weren't as driven we didn't drive each other as much. The majority of players retired at that point and so there was a big um, change uh, in the culture. And I, I kind of think in talking about how hard we worked, it maybe looked from the outside because we'd gone back to back, it maybe looked like it wasn't that difficult to play hockey for Australia or to win Olympic gold medal uh, because we had success over a period of time. It's not easy and especially uh, for hockey, uh, you don't see barely 
anything of what's actually going on under the surface, you know, how hard you're kicking, how far the iceberg is underneath the surface and what's what's going on. And I think we lost lost track of that and lost lost our way a little bit and the the thoughts that oh well talent's enough and and it's definitely not. The program that you're in at the moment, which we've already spoken about a bit, is very different because it's not a team in terms of you know you're not competing as a team. How do you as a coach establish a culture within that? Do you think the lack of team makes it easier or harder? And what is that culture that you try and establish in that environment? I think the, that maybe the lack of team helps. You know, they're not um, competing weekly with each other. There's no, oh, she got more time or, or whatever comes up in a, in a team, I should be playing this position, I'm not. Um, there isn't any of that stuff to distract the athletes from simply becoming the best players that they can be. But they're still in competition with those athletes that are training with them because there's only so many spots in the Australian squad. So the better our training environment is for each of them, uh, the more likely they are to succeed and the more players from my program will succeed. And therefore, uh, if we've got a good culture uh, and are producing players, the more likely the Hockey Roos will be um, successful. So they are competing with each other, um, but they also have to then have some responsibility to each other to provide a training environment. You can't, can't train on your own for um, hockey. You need to have people around you. And if they're not performing to standard, if they're not working hard enough, then it's partly your responsibility to help make that happen. It's definitely my responsibility and I'm in that area of the pathway that says the young players coming in do need to be taught about what training hard is. You know, I don't think there's too many, um, well, I'm sure there's plenty of athletes that get in, you know, automatically and are, are built to train hard. But what does that what does that look like for hockey? How much can I push my body before it breaks? Um, how much do I ask for it? What, what am I capable of? I don't think generally young athletes know what that is and what it, what it takes. And so I think there's an element of, teaching them and building them to, to that um, and then demanding more of, of those uh, that are around them to help push them to achieve that regularly. So I think the culture is critical, but I don't think necessarily that them playing together every week is essential. They play against each other. Uh, they play with other people. They play with older women. They play with younger people. Uh, they are coached by different people. So I think that variety um, helps as well. There's been some quite high-profile uh, players drop out of that squad recently. Do they then go back into your equivalent environment across the country? Yeah, if they're looking to get back into the hockey ruse, then yes. Um, definitely have that scenario. I mentioned um, Kate Jenner. She missed out on the um, squad heading into, into Rio and stepped away for a little bit um, and then decided, yeah, that she she would come back. And so, yes, that, that's exactly the purpose that we're there for, not just for those players that are up and coming, but for those that may have uh, stepped out or... Um, I think we're also trying to encourage a decentralisation as well for those athletes that have been in the system for a while. You know, Jodie Kenny has um, retired now, but um, she she trained um, in Brisbane um, when when we were preparing for 
uh, the Tokyo Olympics as they originally planned for. Um, and it's definitely happened on the men's side as well. So I think taking into account athletes' individual needs is, is a good way to go. And the pathway that we've got can help with that. It's obviously not, not perfect because then you're coming back to training with developing players um, rather than, you know, training with a, with a squad. Uh, with the national squad and the best players in the country all in all in one spot. So it's not to say that it is um, perfect, but it is the next best thing. And the resources that we have um, in some of the states uh, rivals some of the resources that are available to the Hockey Roos in their centralised program as well. So we do have the capacity to support the players in all of those uh, things that, that are required for off-field as well in terms of physio, medical, nutrition, psychology, um, strength, all, all of those pieces uh, are taken care of as well. So I said I was going to talk about hockey ruse, obviously really high profile at the moment in terms of a conversation and what's going on. You've been in that environment as a maternity cover, as an assistant coach, as, as someone who's part of it, how does that environment that's currently there compare to the environment that you were part of and the culture that you were part of that was so successful? Yeah, well, obviously, um, well, let's start with times have changed. Um, and uh, Rick Charlesworth was a very, very hard task master. Uh, I cried regularly. Um, I'm not much of a crier. Um, and yet that level of fatigue, frustration, um, demandingness that was around eventually just, oh, God, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm full. I can't, I can't take any more. And, yeah, you, well, I found for me I would uh, hit something, do something, cry, whatever it was, explode and then be fine, go back again and cop some more of it the next day and, and put myself through it all over again. Um, I think that coaching has changed and, and I think that athletes have changed. I think that high performance has changed. Um, and until we uh, get everything levelled out again, then there's going to be mismatches of leadership styles, of coaching compared with the athletes and also their understanding of what high performance is. I already mentioned before that, yeah, once Rick left and a whole lot of players um, retired, that what was next was, yeah, that, that kind of lack of understanding, I think, of what it really, really took uh, to be world's, world's best. And it takes a little while to, to build that and to comprehend what that, what that looks like. So I, I think it's the mix of everything. And you have to keep finding the right mix. It's the same as getting any good team together. It's finding the right mix, the right combinations, the right people at the right time to make the magic happen. It's, it's not as simple as just, oh, you're a good coach, he's a good player, go, go do it. It is, it is never, ever that, that simple and you've got to find a way to get that, get that done. Yeah, we spoke to um, Lily Brazel a couple of weeks ago and she was very um, articulate and candid in terms of how she found the environment. I think she said similar around there's this attempt almost to replicate Rick's environment, but times have changed, people have yep. changed, the global culture has changed. So to kind of keep trying to hammer that model, you just alienate the athletes. If you look back on your time in that culture, you know, you said you struggled. 
What would you change about it? Yes, you've had success, but would you change anything when you were playing? Oh, that, it's a really tough question because those, those times, like over, over 11 years, that's only a few times. You know, it's not like every week I'm turning up and it, it just is hard work. That, that's it. Um, but you get to that point where you're super tired, had enough, someone will say one thing and it's the final straw that broke the camel's back. It's not one really bad thing that happened. Um, so more often than not, I flourished in that environment. So when I look back, I said before, I'm most proud of becoming the best hockey player that I could become. Rick Charlesworth helped me to achieve that. I am supremely grateful for that. I'm supremely grateful for my teammates for pushing me. There is not much that I would have changed. Um, I, you know, once I got over moving to Perth, which didn't take me very long, and I ended up living there for 20 years, you know, well beyond um, just moving there for um, hockey. There isn't much, I think, I, I craved at the time Rick's compliments every now and then that we um, already uh, mentioned that I would have appreciated um, celebrating some of our results more often. Um, I think just what I needed was as a player was just every now and then, you know, if you get told you've got to improve this, this, this and this, and then if you have or you've done something well, can yeah, just can just a little yes, that's what I'm talking about. Good work, keep it going. Just every every now and then, um, I think uh, would have would have helped. But there were those times when um, Rick did the, do that. Just a simple well play today, and that would carry me through for another year. As terrible as that that sounds, but it was only every now and then. Uh, so there isn't much that I would change. Celebrating wins and and successes, yes, there was room for that. But I wanted to become the best player that I could be. I needed to be told. I, I, you need that knowledge. If you don't have that knowledge, how are you going to get any any better? So there are ways to deliver those messages, no doubt, that, that our group um, was okay with or we would help each other through um, that um, is no longer appropriate, um, that is... Um, needs to be delivered in a, in a particular way so that people actually hear what you've got, got to say. So, yes, I wouldn't actually change that much and I think the high expectations remain. High performance still remains high performance but the way you deliver it um, I think has changed. The way that people um, expect to be treated and rightly so needs to be a consideration these athletes have moved across the country they've already shown great commitment well well let's let's applaud that for starters that's quite amazing these days yeah massively and particularly a, a young age um, yes it's very you know what was what were your support mechanisms that you had around you obviously you're in the team with your sister um, yeah but when times are tough what were you able to lean on yeah, I think um, my sister was a, um, a, a very big support. She also already had a couple of really good friends in the team. And I think then because I was Lisa's little sister, I automatically, um, you know, got, got welcomed um, in. But also you're right about the, the age. Uh, by the time I went to Perth, I think I was 
22, 23, I had a, um, I'd i already faced some tough challenges. I'd had two knee reconstructions by the time I got picked in the Australian squad. So I did my my left knee when I was 18 and then 18 months later um, I did my right knee. So I'd already had these major set, setbacks as well, which then other things maybe, I, I don't know how I would have um, reacted to Rick and the whole Perth environment had I not already had those um, tough things put in front of me to, to overcome already, that I already knew partly what I was capable of and what I'd already been through to get to that point. Um, so I was definitely willing to, to take a lot of crap because I knew what other crap was out there, I suppose. But, yes, I had my sister and my, my teammates. They were um, a great source of of support um uh, but we were all there with a purpose the, the purpose was there and it was clear that for everyone that, that that's what we were trying to do we also um were educated in terms of um psychology in terms of group dynamics you know everyone in in the team does not have to be your friend that's not actually you know, what you're there for. There are people that do end up your friends that end up being really close to you. Um, some of them, uh, yes, are your uh, family members, but you're actually there, first of all, to become the best hockey player that you can become um, and to play as well as you can for the team in order to to achieve, well, for us, it was, it was an Olympic gold medal. Um, I, I think you have to look beyond Certainly in Australia, I think the attitude should be you're looking beyond just making an Olympic team, but that's that's not enough, um, that you have to be aiming higher than that and you have to be striving um, higher than that. And it doesn't always happen. There's only one Olympic gold medal every four years. That is, that is a really um, tough thing to achieve with hundreds of people training towards that same goal. I suppose for me as well, like talking about these two eras, I suppose, of different, you know, what, what the situation is now. And then I think culturally now people have to be much more involved in the sort of co-designing and giving greater autonomy to, to athletes to, yes, as a direction, yes, we know what we've got to achieve, but to design that route map to how you get there. Whereas I think, you know, we said about coaching's change. When we were talking to Rick, he said how didactic and controlling he was. Yeah. He changed, though. He changed. Yeah. yeah. And he said uh, he very active. Yeah. Even in the time that he coached us, he changed. Um, certainly the group then was allowed to evolve as well. Um, well. We had no captains by the time we got to the Sydney Olympics. It was we were all leaders. So you would never say we were leaderless. We were leaderful um, and that everyone was a leader. Everyone was a, was a captain. If you weren't leading, uh, yeah, what, what, are you, what are you doing here? We're, we're driving towards something. If you're not driving towards that, then you're dead weight. Um, so, yes, it, he changed. He, it's the things I was talking about with the younger players coming in. You have to actually coach them, teach them how to train hard, what's possible. This is what we do. This is how it is. 
that's how he came in. This is what we're doing. This is how you behave. And for me, it was perfect because that was my first national squad. When he came in, that's exactly what I needed. I needed direction. I needed to be told what to do because I didn't know. I learned. I listened. I paid attention. Slowly but surely, you know, then by the end of my career as captain of the Hockey Roos, you you evolve over that, that period of time and you... Um, it's the same as coaching. You know, at the time, I definitely didn't realise how much he changed and only when I looked back. And then later when I started coaching and, and he came back to coach the Kookaburras, I didn't know who he was by that stage. He, it was chalk and cheese between when he started coaching the Hockey Roos, having not coached women before, having even not done too much coaching actually, um, to then the coach that he was with the boys he evolved. He was fluid. He, he can actually present to that now the stages that he went through in terms of his coaching style. That's a leader. You know, that's not a coach. That's a leader. That's someone who, who adapts, who provides at the time what the group needs. That's next level. That's, that's not just coaching your team on a Saturday. That's, that's a leader. Um, really quite I mean he's an impressive human being um, but to evolve like that that's a constant learning and a real self-awareness that allows you to adapt to how you're being how you're presenting yourself um, and how you're being perceived. How, how do you as an as a coach keep yourself open to that and keep yourself open to the needs of the the athletes but the the need culturally and the needs of yourself to be the best coach you can be to change what are you doing in, in your yeah path? I think I think for starters you accept that you don't know everything it's okay it's okay not to not to know everything and that's certainly what I wanted to show I did do at the start when I started coaching I wanted to be accepted as a coach and I'm not here just because I was a I was a player I'm here because I can coach hockey so really being driven to to prove that I could coach hockey at the start I didn't know what I didn't know so that ability to keep an open mind that it's okay that you don't have all of the answers all of the time you don't have to um I'm in a much better place now to be um, much more self-aware um and I've done plenty of coaching courses to help me to get to that point in fact I went on you know one coaching course that was about coaching all different um, sport coaches there. And this was actually run through the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, and I was expecting to learn how to coach better. I mean, that sounds really weird. And I did. But the premise of it was to, first of all, you have to know yourself. You know, what are my strengths and weaknesses? How do I come across to the athletes? It's one thing for me to know what I know. Well, me sitting on the bench, what's the point of that? The knowledge, the information has to be out on the field. So if you can't translate what you know, if you can't teach it, if you can't coach it um, and share it, uh, then that's a problem. And it was, it was actually something that Rick always said, which was I should be able to not be here at a match. He that It didn't get to that point. It did for training at one point where he just would uh, sit back and watch and see what we would do, see if we could coach ourselves. And we certainly... Well, I felt like we got to that point that we could coach ourselves, that if he was sick one day and couldn't come to a match, okay, that we would we would actually be okay. 
that he made himself and it was always his plan to make himself redundant. That's, you know, I think we've all heard that from, from coaches. That was the first time I'd, I'd heard it from Rick that, you know, he doesn't need to uh, show what he knows all the time. He needs us to show what we've learnt from him. That's, that's what it was. Um, and I think it took me a little while to come back around to that as a, as a coach, so hellbent on um, proving myself. Um, anyway, these, yeah, the coaching course at the AIS really helped me to do that because it helped me to know myself first. You know, I thought I was really um, empathetic as a coach because, well, I was a player. I get it. Um, but I was really too quick to go, yeah, no, you'll be fine. Get over it. Get on with it. Ah, oh, that happened to me. Rather than actually listening to the athlete, you know, the first rule of empathy is to actually listen to the, to the person and I, I wasn't listening. So things that I thought were my strengths were not. So not only is it that you need to be aware of yourself but uh, sometimes those things that you think you do well, you might not actually be able to uh, be, be doing those things as well as you um, think. So coaching Peers, getting feedback from peers, really hard for coaches to get feedback. That's uh, one of the hardest hardest things. Um, so creating a network in that in that course of coaches from different sports was really critical. Um, and of course, we all know like how much uh, sports are similar. The more you look at sports, the more they are the same, not not different. So speaking to other coaches. But I'm also trying to get my business degree at the moment as well. I'm studying online and do a unit at a time. And it really is, although they still call it a management, a, a business degree, it is just management. It is people management. It is leadership. It is creating teams. Uh, at the moment, I'm learning about coaching in terms of performance management and providing feedback um, to staff that even in, in terms of management and business these days, they're talking about coaching their um, workers. So, so I feel like I'm actually studying coaching from, uh, from a broader perspective of, of leadership and, and management. So that's really helped me to open my eyes as well and it, it directly applies to sports coaching as far as, as I can see. And um, all of your listeners that are coaches will understand how much time you spend coaching that isn't on the turf that isn't specific skills coaching. It is all people management, most of it. It is athlete management. How do you get the most out of your players? Um, so, yes, 10,000 hours of practice, but if you've pissed one of your players off and they don't want to play for you and you don't have trust and you haven't built respect, you're not going to get anything out of them anyway. Um, so I think that that's a really important piece. Well, those two pieces, the knowing, knowing yourself um, and how to get the most out of yourself and making it about the athletes, not about you. Um, and, yeah, my, my broader studies in management have really helped me to stay open and contemporary as well. So you talked about identifying strengths and weaknesses. What would you say your super strengths are as a coach and what are the real limitations that you have when coaching? Oh, good questions. I think... I think my strengths are, uh, well, they've grown in, in my management of people, of my performance team uh, and, and the staff that I have in and around um, teams. And 
my ability to use their strengths to my advantage as well. You know, the fact, well, I don't know everything, so I need to get people around me um, that do know those those things or, or have strengths in that, that area. Um, I am very uh, organised as well. So if I'm going to do something and I uh, say that I'm going to do it, I will do it. That That's a Rick thing as well. Um, that some of the key things that I've learned when I was playing, uh, you know, if you're going to do something, then you do it to the best of your ability. If you say you're going to do something, you do it because if it's worthwhile doing, then um, you're doing it and you're going to follow it through to the best of your ability, that you turn up on time, you are punctual, you're in a team, people rely on you. Um, so I am all of those things. I am, I like to think that I'm a good role model um, and I'm definitely organised, well-planned um, and structured. I'm trying to be a little bit, um, it, you know, surprise my athletes every now and then and be a bit spontaneous. Um, uh, but I want them to know that they can rely on me. Um, I always could rely on the coaches that I had and I want them to be able to rely on me. I want to be there for them. So hopefully building that trust and respect is something that I do well as well. In terms of weaknesses, well, I'm still trying to be as empathetic as I can be to listen to athletes, to not dismiss things, uh, you know, oh, well, I've had two knee reconstructions. I was quite resilient. You can smash me and I'll get up the next day and still come back again. So just because I was like that doesn't mean that everyone else is and that they bring in their young women. Um, but all athletes, all people have other things going on as well. It's not always about hockey and hockey isn't always going to be the priority because other things happen. COVID happens. You're in lockdown. Uh, they've got to move back home to their regional areas that they've been to. Uh, young athletes have, well, they're studying. All of their studying shifted to online. They're all part-time and casual workers. They all lost their jobs, you know. I had athletes that had two jobs, lost them both. Um, so, okay, well, hockey's not exactly the most important thing right now. Um, so empathy, listening, yes, being single-minded uh, uh, focus is sometimes has been um, a weakness of mine. And so then I sometimes don't maybe pick up on the on the cues of when people are struggling. So I, um, I, I make sure that I've got an assistant coach that's quite good with that, a physio that is brilliant with that. Uh, I, I think that I'm better at it, but um, just that ability to have other people supporting me in that area to make sure that the athletes are okay. I might not be good at picking up the cues, but I, I do care. I want them to be okay. I want them to be successful, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, to be proud of what they're involved in and to build some self-confidence and self-esteem in the people that, that they are, some belief in um, what they, the, the talents that they have and what they can achieve in their lives if they want to. So, yeah, I don't want to miss any of those key things. If they're struggling, yeah, I want to be able to help them. But, yeah, I've got to be really alert to that stuff. It's funny you're talking about having colleagues who give your program balance based around what, what your capabilities or strengths and weaknesses are. We spoke to Adam Commons recently, and it's one of the big drivers in terms of the Belgium 
hockey programs. Right, we've got this from our head coach. Okay, so what do they need that that they don't do particularly well themselves? And having yep. that divergence of staff to yep. give both the view of the game that's broad and robust, but also to give the athletes people they can connect with or the you know a program that that really caters to their needs. You touched on, you know, athletes may have lost their jobs or, you know, COVID is this massive curveball that just mm-hmm. smashed through the world and you can't get on the pitch or, you know, they don't need tech tax support. What did you do with your players to support them in those instances? Yeah, we, we went online and if we had have had this interview at this time last year, I said, I would have said also one of my weaknesses is maybe my um, innovativeness. I already said I'm not particularly spontaneous. Um, you know, I'm not exactly um, brilliant in the tech space. So I've got good support around me in that space. I struggle to be really innovative because I'm slightly risk adverse. It's one of my personality traits that came up on my coaching course. You know, I want dead set probabilities. You know, you go on your four stick because the probability is higher rather than on your reverse stick. Um, practice, practice, practice. That's how you get better at your core skills. They won't just magically happen. So I'm quite practical and, and less um, innovative unless it's proven tactic of, a you know, this, this coaching um, strategy. Yeah, no, I'm gonna uh, stick with what I with what I know, but that's a year ago. COVID has happened, and I am much. Uh, well, I discovered I was way more innovative than I thought I was, um, and we ran pretty much a whole program online. So, the majority of hockey players in um, that come out of New South Wales come from regional areas. Uh, there's um, Oh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's like six, maybe there's like eight million people in New South Wales and there's a couple of million that are regionally based. Um, And it is all the regions where there's lots of hockey being played. So all of our good um, players coming out of New South Wales, I shouldn't say all of them, but a majority of them come from regional areas. So when athletes lose their jobs and they can't afford to rent in Sydney anymore, like COVID did, they, they, they go home. You can't, can't, well, we're in lockdown, can't train anyway. Um, and so it was all all online. Um, their training programs, obviously uh, strength and conditioning is, a, is an easy one to do. Um, so my um, lead SNC at the time, uh, Phil Moreland, who's worked with um, uh, Scottish Hockey, he uh, made sure each of them sent in exactly what equipment they had at home. We obviously gave them some stuff to take with them. He would devise them programs in and around what they had. Uh, and obviously running we were um, allowed to do, they're allowed out to exercise. So then on top of that, we did cook-alongs. You know, our nutritionist, like, took them into her home. Here's what's in my cupboard from this. This is what I'm going to make. And they had the recipe, followed along, did a cook-along. We did work on our culture. We did online Pilates once a week, our physio 1pm on a Wednesday, it didn't matter whether you were a New South Wales athlete in Perth, uh, in Tamworth or in Wollongong, you were online on a Wednesday, 1pm doing Pilates with the whole whole group. That was probably my favourite thing because it was a, a social thing as well. We got to see everyone together. It was um, physical um, as well and, and obviously then they get the benefits of the, the mental well-being of connecting 
with the with the group again. We had also done a bit of a, a world's best database just beforehand, which was about you know we the feedback for the athletes they get. Oh, where do you sit against world's best? Without then really showing them, well, in receiving, what does world's best actually look like? Okay, so there's the database. So the athletes then got um, tasks in and around skills that they needed to improve that were on their development plans that they had to study and then report back to a coach about what they saw, what it would mean to be a good receiver, what does that look like, and what then they would practice in order to get that skill better to be world um, class. We extrapolated that out to being then, okay, here's this person that's um, world's best at playing this position. Uh, Here's Carla Rebecca. Here's lots of um, footage of her. What does she do? What's her role? What's her responsibilities? What are the skill sets that she has that makes her one of the best strikers in the world? What's the gap to you? How how are we going to get there? So it was the athletes then actually providing the feedback of of what, what the gap looks like for them to being world's best. So we did so much in that time. The athletes had to post videos in our group chats about uh, we had um, hockey hands. They had to do a project every week that was in and around their home of um, hockey hands. Um, at least, uh, I, I suppose in Australia, it might be different different places. The majority of athletes, especially if they're going home to regional areas, at least they have a bit of space to work with. Grass, maybe it's concrete in some places, but at least there's usually some outdoor um, area available. They had to post videos. Then we would have challenge weeks. They could be quizzes um, on one day. They would have to write their own conditioning programs and complete them on other days. Um, they would be set a run and it would be the fastest to get it done. So this challenge week would then um, be for points and, and they would win uh, a, an item of performance uh, gear, whether it be, oh, I don't know, we're, um, we're uh, very nicely supported at Entwith's, um by Mizuno and Two Times You. So it would be an item of performance clothing of some sort that the winner of Challenge Week would win. So the following week after that, we'd have to have a rest week. You know, it was, okay, let's leave them alone for a week. We did so much stuff. We had to periodise then the weeks that we were in lockdown. So high contact week back to low contact week. Let's let's just take, take it down a notch. They're going to get sick of us soon. But they responded really really well I was amazed with how they came out of a 12-week lockdown how um, fit they were and how not out of touch they were because they engaged in this program and I think for this group at that time this age group what we provided was just what was required for them that little bit of structure you know, log in here, you've got to have an individual meeting with a coach to report back here. Oh, we're going to do some cooking now. I don't know how, but we jagged it. I suppose it's knowing your athletes, reading the room a little bit as well and, and hearing feedback from them so that when they had their individual meetings, it was still, right, how are you going? What are you struggling with? What can we do better? Is it more? Is it less? Is this enough? Tell us because we don't have any answer here. No one's ever done this before. There's no textbook to look at here and now. So so tell us or if we're getting this wrong, then, you know, it will, it will come back to, to bite you as an athlete. 
I think that per- the periodization of remote contact is actually something I've not heard before, and I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm annoyed that I didn't think of that, but um, that again shows that you've, you've got the pulse of the athletes because you're thinking about, oh, where are they at? Um, yeah. There's been stuff I've done with, with our team in Belgium when we've had to do remote stuff where to start off with, you're like, oh, we need to give them some sort of routine. And actually, you kind of, you feel a bit of apathy towards what's going on. You're just like, they need a break. Yeah. They just need time to chill and spend with their families. So I think that's, yeah. that's really interesting. And it definitely started that way. Obviously, they were then relocating back home, essentially. It might only be a few hours drive or whatever. But, um, okay, Go, go home. There's at least a week. I won't contact you for another week. Get yourself sorted with uni, set up again, back moving back home. Internet, like there's, you know, okay, go, go away and then we'll um, check back in um, later. But there really was that, that reading of the room because for me I was like, well, what are we doing? These aren't athletes that are training for Tokyo right now and the whole world has just shifted. You know, young people and their world shifting is usually it's, oh, it's moving to the big city. That's a big enough shift. Yeah. You know, starting university, that's a big shift. That That's, you know, the point in time that these young women are at. To have then COVID shift the whole world, I didn't want to underplay the importance of that either or acknowledge that. Oh, it's, oh yeah, we'll just keep doing hockey. Just do it at home. No, hockey's not actually important right now. It's not. Um, so yeah, I didn't want to undersell it, underplay it or, or minimize, I suppose is probably a good word. I didn't want to minimize what everyone was going through at that point in time, but in particular, yeah, our, our young athletes and how, um, yeah, how much of a shift that was, was at, at that time as well for them. I think not to, not to diminish how any a group has been affected by COVID, but I just think young people in particular have missed out on so much you know there's in in the UK we're probably going to have been in lockdown for more than a year if you look at the disruption Mm. from March it's going to keep going past February um Mm. you know some some kids will have gone from being 15 to being 17 in that time or being 17 to 19 and you just think all of the experiences good and bad that they're going to miss out on because of it's astronomical as As someone who's, you know, you said you crave certainty, how did you deal with it? Yeah, not, not, not too bad. I Initially I, um, I struggled just because of the athletes and exactly what I just said then about, well, we weren't training for Tokyo. So the young, young women that are um, under my guidance and leadership why am I bringing them out in this? You know, university's already gone online. They're not, they're not going to university. They've lost their jobs, but I'm still telling them they have to come to hockey training. That's what I, I struggled with. I struggled with how they would cope. I think um, having to move back home after you've made the big jump to the big city and, and moved out of home to then just have to go back again for an unknown period of time to lose your lease um, yes, your, your uncertainty. So I think for me it was, was easy. You know, I just came back to, to my home. I didn't have to pack up and, and go somewhere else and feel like I have to start again. Um, at some point I was 
probably overly concerned for them. You know, I'm not their parents. Um, and some of them are older than that, you know, 24, 25 kind of thing and, um, and, and fine. Um, so I was probably more concerned about, about the athletes. I uh, then, like anyone, am concerned about my parents who are older um, and in their 80s. That's, that's my concern. Um, uh, same as anyone else, you know, and I've got younger nieces and nephews uh, that are out of school, exactly as you're saying. How is this going to impact young people um, in the future? And I tried to get some of the athletes, once we once we were allowed to come back, is to actually reflect on the time. I, I said to you, oh, my God, I, oh, sugar, I'm innovative. I didn't know I was. I can shift really quickly within that week of saying, nah, you're going home, it was a Monday. By the following Monday, I already had a brand new program, completely brand new. I'd already set out the program for the year. That was already done, no problems at all. This was like obviously nothing uh, you've ever done before, but ready then to roll it out the next week. And so me reflecting on my coaching practice and not, again, uh, oh, well, I said that was one of my weaknesses. Well, hang on a minute. Maybe it's not as bad anymore as what I thought it was. So to keep rethinking as a coach, what are my weaknesses today? What are my strengths today? Not what I think they are and also maybe not what someone once told me they were. That's not necessarily true anymore. Yeah. So then what I got the athletes to do also was to reflect back on their time so that they could see how resilient they'd been in that time, how amazed I was with what they came out looking like, and then the education that they got in and around the pieces that go with hockey. So although we didn't get to train as a group, they showed how much they could do away from the pitch and on their own. So if that happens, they know how to run a conditioning session now. If they're stuck at home, they know how to do a gym, a strength session for themselves and when to program that throughout the week. They know to pick up a stick and ball and what um, technical stuff they can practice on their own and, and other, you know, surfaces around the place that, that they can use. So they were, they've come a long way, but unless you actually stop to think about it and reflect, you might learn, you might miss that you've actually learned something and changed. That fits as well in terms of what, what you were talking about earlier and, you know, talking about Rick, about making yourself redundant as a coach. Mm -hmm. A lot of the, the learning that you, you seem to have engendered in people is, is about them being more independent in their own development, which I think is fantastic. Looking, looking back on that, what might you keep now the world hopefully is going to get back to more normality? What from what you've added do you think actually long-term is going to be valuable? Yeah, well, I think um, it, because the athletes are um, regional, they've always, if, if they are uni students and maybe living on um, uni accommodation, often they get kicked out of that. So it, it has sometimes uh, prevented some athletes from coming back to Sydney sooner on, than they might have. And that used to stress me out. Oh, we've started training, you know, you've got to be here. Now I'm like, oh, no, you don't. Uh, you, you can do that at home and join us when um, uni accommodation becomes available again. Oh, grandma's not well? Okay, go. Uh, here's, here's a program. Go do this. Off you go. Go spend a week or two. It will be fine. You know, not just go, oh, a day or two, then, you know, you've got to get back because you're training. Definitely less concerned about players not 
actually being in in front of me and that stopping their development it doesn't it doesn't have to um that they've learned to drive their own development hopefully that continues um but also just in terms of uh being more adaptive to what's happening at the time are the athletes tired do we need to not train do we need to train more um and on the go changing things and and being okay with that I didn't like it as an athlete I didn't like um things changing I I want notice I gotta you know mentally prepare so I um am much more prepared to change things on people now and go oh well deal with it this is what we're doing uh get get on with it we're doing it for this reason this reason not just changing for the sake of it but you know maybe that is to build a bit of their resilience and their adaptability um but yes much uh, more willing to change things to shift things online it's difficult in Sydney as well to have individual meetings with athletes and I'd always usually align them with a training session because otherwise the athlete's driving for an hour in Sydney to get to an hour's meeting to drive an hour home again. So now many, many more meetings um, are happening online. Um, Majority of, uh, you know, we're starting out our year now, so majority of um, the development plans that are being written at the moment with the athletes, yeah, the majority of them are online, not necessarily face-to-face. I, st- I still like the uh, the face-to-face piece, the being able to really read someone there um, and be in the same room, the same space. But it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way. So yeah, much more flexible with the with the training program. And the coaches have a, an additional training session to give, um, and the athletes uh, in for their individual sessions a week, which they have to do two of. They've given I've given them now three times uh, in which they can choose to do their their two sessions. So they're way more in charge of when they train. That includes on turf, and it's a gym session as well. They're actually in charge of each Friday telling me when they're going to train the next week. Here's what you have to do, two group sessions, two individual sessions, two gym sessions, two club sessions. All right, for these sessions, tell me when when you're doing them. And they've been really good with responding to that. I think they appreciate the flexibility that that gives. Um, They get to determine when their day off in the week is then and it's according to when they work, when they're um, when they're studying. Um, so it works back in with them, not just always that hockey is the number one priority and you rearrange everything else around. Um, and uh, they've been really good with organising themselves. So it, it's it, it's helpful in a number of ways. Is less training, uh, less less players at each of those training sessions. So it's it's a closer ratio of coach to player um, as well, which means more attention for them. It does mean doing an extra training session, but the value and what we've got out of those sessions so far in terms of their technical development and how much we can um, address it. And the freedom that they feel that they've got, the responsibility that's put back on them to drive their own development uh, is hard to judge, um, but I've got no doubt will work out in the athlete's uh, favour in in the future. I've got two questions left. First one, who's going to win the Olympics? Yeah, I've got to say the Dutch, don't I? Alison Annan. And then, um, yes, because they're, they're a very good team, obviously, um, and uh, the Kookaburras uh, for the men. 
Ooh, okay. Um, who, who, so the Dutch is a cop out for the women. Who's going to be in the final with them? Good question. I'm going to say Australia and be very parochial. Um, but it, it could be any number of teams. I think it's a really close race um, for the, for that that top group. Um, yes, Argentina, um, uh, GB, us. Oh, God, could be New Zealand. Um, yeah, there's a number of teams in that, that top group, China, uh, that on any given day, uh, it could go um, either way. So, yes, I I think it could be a toss of a coin and those teams that are uh, put it out there on the day at the time under pressure of uh, of the uh, Olympic, uh, the Olympic pressure. Uh, and the, the last bit is really what's next for you? Where, where do you see yourself going? You say you're completing your degree. Um, what, what do you think the next step is? Yeah, well, if, for me this year, um, I've uh, picked up an extra role, which is coaching the Junior World Cup team, um, the, the Australian Junior Women's team. So um, that's my um, my focus right now. Hopefully, 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 I think I'm asking for a miracle for things to actually um, happen. Hopefully the Junior World Cups do um, happen um, this year and there's an opportunity um, for our um, underage players to uh, get some good competition. Um, I know some teams are, um, are playing and, and some countries have more opportunities to play internationals than um, others, depending on what's going on in the world. Um, but, yeah, there are plenty of competitions uh, happening uh, in the world in terms of um, other sports and I'm really hoping that... Um, Hockey is going to be one of them um, this year as soon as we can, and I'm yeah, I'm just I'm really hoping that the the Junior World Cups can can happen, even though they're in countries uh, that are right now struggling a little bit. So fingers crossed. Have you seen much of the group that you've got? Have you worked with them yet? Not much at all. No, because yeah, not only Australia is not uh, doing too badly in terms of COVID cases. In fact. We have no daily transmission for the last um, week in Australia. Uh, other places, uh, so that's New South Wales, that's the that's the worst, and other places have had none for a long time. But we keep shutting our um, state borders, um, so we can't get our underage uh, national groups together uh, because they shut the borders and then have people um, quarantining when they, when they return. So I'm... Hopeful that our state premiers can get their um, act into gear, but there's a bit of, well, I think a bit of politics happening and we're very, very cautious at the moment and that cautiousness is hurting us both economically um, and, and sporting-wise. Um, so I haven't seen much of the players. We've got a camp, uh, a men's camp, a junior men's camp due late Feb and the women's camp due um, mid-March. So fingers crossed that we can find a way to get that done. We've postponed and delayed things already and um, it's obviously really difficult for the athletes to keep keep focusing in on, on training when those competitions get, get pushed back. It's a shame. Yeah, well, hopefully it happens and um, you have a good team and are able to nurture some of the stars of the future. 
that get to win silver medals at the Olympics when <laughs> goals. So um, medals. Yeah, it's been uh, lovely to chat with you, and thank you very much for giving you time up. I know it's late there, and I've I've rattled on for a bit. So no, uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've really I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Ah, cheers. Thank you for being so open and and gracious my with pleasure. your time. Right. My pleasure. No problems. Right. Thanks, Will. Yeah, cheerio. Good luck with it all. See ya. <laughs> cheers. Bye-bye. Great to be back and great to chat to Trini. Obviously, since we spoke, she's taken over as head coach of the Hockey Roos, and I'm sure her answer about who will win the Tokyo Olympics will be very different now. So best of luck to her and the squad during the Games. I hope you've enjoyed episode one of season four and make sure you listen next time for some more left field thinking. Bye for now.